You told me you were going to let your fruit get cold, and now I'm listening to you chew. I'm just registering a complaint. I'm down. <laughs> I'm hungry. Oh, I won't do this during recording, so I've got to shovel it in now. He's um, registering a complaint with the management. Um <laughs> Welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey, you two. Hey, everybody. It's going okay. How you been? Been good. Been good. Trisha, you want to weigh in, or should just Jason and I chat? I mean, Jason rarely speaks, so I figured I'd have to Jay said you need to talk more. Those are my editing notes to you. You need to talk more. <laughs> also, when we interrupt you, you need to say, both of you, shut the fuck up and let me talk. Because I feel really bad when I'm editing. Like, oh my God, we cut off Jason again. Oh my God, we cut off Jason again. Jason, I'm sorry. That's my goal is for you to feel guilty. Oh, oh my God, the I'm, Jewish I'm guilt. winning. If you're the feeling Jew- guilty, I'm winning. <laughs> oh, what's the last interesting thing people did? Since our taping, I've gone to two surprise, surprise outings. Um, I threw a surprise birthday party for my sister, which was Yay. a fabulous success, I think, with the help mm. of two really, really great friends. It looked fantastic. Um, one of whom is a fabulous watcher of the listener of this podcast. Hi. Was amazing. Amazing. Ingrid was great. She put together an amazingly beautiful party. She- all of <laughs> All of it. Ingrid, she's only saying that because you're listening. <laughs> no, she knows. I was like already pumped about the whole thing. It was great. It was all outside. We tried to obey the rules with masks and stuff like that. But, but there the were mask came off and you all like, started you hugging. Know. No, I mean, we were hugging as much as we could. But you know what I realized? I was reading through the paperwork that today. Some Somebody posted it online. And they're like, you're fully vaccinated two weeks after. Yeah, your final shot at, or for the Johnson two weeks after your yeah. one shot. I had been going in my mind of four weeks. No, so, I um, told you this. I know, but I like built in like an extra time period just to feel safe. <laughs> um, and then I looked and I was like, wait, I'm fully vaccinated now. So, um, and then I also went out just um, this past week for like a wonderful birthday dinner at this amazing Italian place that is so overpriced, but the food is so good and they have a wonderful outdoor seating area. So it was just like, you know what? So lame, but it's stuff that we haven't done in forever, which is see groups of people. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Was it weird to like be around people did you act any differently what were you hugging or were you sort of like nodding hi so nice to see you like no, I, i'm you know, curious how I this is gonna doing... go when things open up again no you know what it was i everything felt like extra special like i just kept looking around going it's so nice to be outside it's just so nice but so were nice. people like leaning into you to talk or like you, you know, know what actually like... is really funny i think we were still maintaining that vibe of like distance not everyone at the table was vaccinated some were mid-vaccination whatever so everyone was sort of like still maintaining right we put on masks during pause times when we weren't eating we had the hand sanitizers there so it was still that sort of like cautious participation Mm -hmm. so it wasn't it wasn't completely like what everyone thinks is supposed to happen in the summer where you're just gonna have like a fabulous time and people are gonna just go crazy in raves and stuff. it wasn't that in raves we're, we're still, gonna, we were still very cautious they can get in time machines and go back to the 90s and go to a rave. yeah uh, what, <laughs> i feel like i i'm different a year later 
And I am just wondering what does like, that when, mean? I, when I get back around people, like, I don't know, I'm such a huggy, touchy person. And now the very thought of it makes me upset. Like, and I'm like, oh, well. and even like, I see people, I do like the vigorous wave. And that, <laughs> Hi, <laughs> you know, and that's- Yeah, it. I definitely didn't hug a lot of, I definitely yeah, don't hug people that I- yeah. You know, I'm, I'm feeling a, like a little, a little, I don't know, distance here. Cause like, I'm not vaccinated. I have to admit like this week, the news of like, you know, cases are 20% up and blah, blah, blah. Like I feel, you know, it's not just me, obviously everyone, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster, but I also share like this week I had a, a zoom call with someone for work and they mentioned someone that I know that works with her. Um, and she's like, Oh, she just got COVID and she's mm-hmm. in the hospital on oxygen. Mm-hmm. And of course, like rationally, we know that's still happening all the time, but like, it's just, for me, it feels like this weird, like, I don't know, like whiplash. And Habby got vaccinated this week. She wasn't even planning on it. She went to the doctor for a routine annual physical and they were like, oh, we're just offering yeah, they're just anybody stabbing an appointment. With it, yeah. So she, she got Johnson & Johnson, so she's done. I haven't been a terribly paranoid person through all this and I'm not now, but like, I feel a little weird, like even hearing you two, like, oh, it's two weeks, four weeks. And I'm like, motherfuckers like i'm still not vaccinated <laughs> and my wife over here is vaccinated like i, I feel like the, the guy who's still in peril you know what a friend said that to me that she needed to get more aggressive in like searching for the vaccination sites and just going and looking and finding her appointment i mean i i was on cvs's website and it asks the questions are you blah 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 blah, blah or blah and like no i don't meet any of those criteria i don't meet it for the government websites in maryland yet Wall- oh like, I, where you are yeah like where you most are. states are throwing open the gates at this point they're like well, california just recently said you know if you're a certain age and yeah. all that maryland they're down to 60 Oh. oh my God. Other states are like 16 and up. I, I know. Pennsylvania. I know. People I work with. Like, guys I, that's what I mean. Down I feel to 60. Like... People are down to 16. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my God. You know, Connecticut got rid of their residency um, requirement. So you just drive up here and get shot and go back. Hmm. So that's interesting. Think about that. Uh, just everyone get vaccinated, please. ASAP. Well, we're trying. We're trying. I mean, I, it isn't. I completely agree with you, Jason, because it's like I'm feeling as if. California is moving in this one particular direction, which doesn't mean much at all because it's like different parts of California will be. And then I'm seeing the like the numbers bumping up in different places and the person from the CDC crying, right? And it's like, what is going on? What was and that? Then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should, it's okay. I mean, well, I think, you know, I think time. Biden and the governors are racing against this fourth wave. So yeah. that's why they're just, that's why they're just running around like leaping and stabbing people in the arm because they're trying to beat the fourth wave and so we'll see if this if this race works we will see uh i feel i feel optimistic though just because i have to be i have to be because i can't go backwards i i don't know if i'm optimistic long term but it doesn't mean we won't have a very rough few months there's a person that i read a lot of my vaccine stuff and she was saying it really at this point in time yes the surge is real if there is such a thing you want to call it but what you can do is you can be really really targeted you know, if you're seeing surges now, you need to go into that area, test people, vaccinate yeah. them, like actually yeah. act and move in, yeah. surround as you would, you know? We can aerosol. Can we just yeah. bomb certain towns? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, but see, if anyone's listening as a scientist, can you let us know? Can we just like, just, you know what I got to do with like mosquitoes? You're, you're sounding a lot like that Trump press conference that, you know, that Sarah <laughs> Cooper know. did such a good job with. Can't we just you get mean, some UV light yeah, in here? Can we just, just, 
can we do a test like there? You're going to test it? Put in people's butts and just no, no, no. But I, I think right at this out. point in time, no, I think at this point in time, it's like we do have resources. So now it's like be very, very directed. But it's like the vaccine distribution overall, we have it. But mm. like the question of like who's getting it, how easy is it to get, that is now a big issue, right? It's like this is the logistical nightmare. Similarly with the surge, it's like okay, where where are we seeing surges? What can we do? Can mm. we take it there? Johnson and Johnson allows you to actually take it, right? Because you don't have the refrigeration issues. Right. So God we'll see. Johnson and Johnson. Except for, their, except for that recent snack. Except for the Baltimore 15 yeah. dose problem. Should we, buy, <laughs> should we be buying stock in these companies? No. Okay. I well. mean, I don't play the stock market, so I don't know. I suppose, I suppose people who are wiser than me would know. I, I, they'd all say buy GameStop. I honestly, I thought I didn't know how the stock market worked before. Now I've just <laughs> given up. <laughs> talk about stock market at some point in time we have to have someone come on and explain bitcoin to me because no i'm mad. are you are you even interested listen <laughs> i don't care if this makes me a grandpa non-fungible uh currency i i barely I like understand bitcoin, it and i don't I want like to bitcoin, i feel like it works for people like you for people who are into dungeons and dragons isn't okay. that kind of like a All mythical right. sort of day <laughs> like you know what i mean like i feel like there's a kind of like openness to your mind that has that that requ- that's required in video game culture which then that then lends itself to bitcoin understanding <laughs> wow that <laughs> you bridge know, I, was shaky but i've listened to it. some I, I haven't dedicated any time to it but like i want to understand this stuff and yeah. i have to tell you i consider myself a pretty smart guy i can pick up on stuff and i was listening to these podcasts i'm like i'd hear the explanation and i'm like i have no idea that, like nothing. Listen, nothing. That's nothing what I am about micro and macro. Well, micro, I, that's economics in general. Yeah. I'm just like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bitcoin, fine. If, if, if it becomes a thing and we, if it becomes like the Venmo of the new age and that's how we're receiving money, fine. But until I'm absolutely forced, then, <laughs> then there we go. All right, let's move into some topics. Uh, what I wanted to talk about today was culture. In America, we don't care about each other. Lately, it's kind of our thing. The past five years under President Trump, he celebrated and advanced the cause of cruelty and selfishness in the country. The idea that I care about myself and my family, maybe, myself first, my family possibly second, and no one else third. That includes our neighbors, our community, And you can see this played out in so many different ways in the last couple of years. When I was thinking about this, I'm looking out and I'm like, you know, if we continue down this path, like there's not much of America left. Like Jason had pointed out in a previous episode, we don't have shared values as a country anymore. And that's a problem. So I was thinking, okay, well, if we don't have shared values in the country, can we shift the culture? Can we move the pendulum the other way? Can um, Americans be about taking care of your neighbors and not necessarily this brand of fierce and cruel individualism and anti, dare I say, anti-communist, but really (laughs) anti-community behavior? And if we could shift that, if we could move the pendulum, then who could be responsible for that? Would, do we need like something like a governmental ministry of culture? Should we, as we typically do, rely on our celebrities to push that? How do we, what levers can we pull to make us uh, more of a community as a nation? Is that possible? Or am I just being like too kumbaya? What do you two think? I feel like lots and lots of questions, an increasing amount of questions about, you know, how could we fill in the blank 
it's hard for me to imagine in our, the current structure of our country. I think about the country right now and our country is like designed for this tension between local jurisdictions and states and the federal government. I know that's not, you're not just talking about that stuff, mm-hmm. but I have a hard time seeing us move forward in the current structure. So I, first of all, I go back to values. Like it's hard for me to imagine having enough collective energy to do anything without a conversation about values. I would like to see us operate more like a nation state and not a nation of different states that don't share values. And then I'd like us to have some kind of a collective conversation and process is probably better term in this case than conversation to get to, these are our values as a country. And then, and then how do we promote behaviors that live up to those values? You just restated my question. That's exactly what I'm asking. (laughs) No, well then my, no, here's my- pulling those levers? How do we do those things? I don't know how to do it without rewrite, like writing a new constitution. Well, that's okay. First of all, that I told you, I know, but that, and I want to be clear, that could be our answer to everything we discuss on this podcast, right? And I- I was listening to a lot of old podcasts. There was like six in a row that that's where we kept ending up. Clearly we should just talked about that. That's always the answer. But like we have moved the needle on culture without blowing everything up and writing in new constitutions. How can we do that now? And, and, or is it too late? I don't know. What do you think, Trisha? Well, I'm thinking about things where we have moved the needle. We have to think about influencers. Ew. Right. No, oh, no, you don't okay. mean Instagram. You mean, no, like, oh my God. <laughs> It goes to show you that your 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 conceptualization of things have changed, right? Yeah, By the culture. Yeah. I'm talking about people, influencers, by e people who influence you have the capacity to have an impact on you. Mm. <laughs> um, and um, so what I'm actually looking for, and you met you use the word culture. I was thinking about who are cultural leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think you can, because I think a part of this is if we push apart, pull apart all the pieces that Jason's talking about, moving away from sort of the nation state pieces and thinking much more um, locally. So we think about communities, we think about community leaders, we think about our schools, we think about our churches, we think about our student and after school clubs, we think about sports, we think about all of those are levers that we have to pull and talk about what are our shared values or what are community building um, things that we can, buttons that we can push on, right? Because I think part of it too is our incentive structures, right? Our incentive structures is aligned with the things that you've just mentioned, Chris, as the problem. But if what if you are rewarding um, schools for how many kids are, which I know is problematic now, but how many kids are not in timeouts or how many kids are doing um, activities together? Like there are ways that I think that you can define what it means to be a part of a community and then nudge those buttons, right? And then you think about like the larger space, like media and wh- what are the stories we tell? How do we communicate about what what me- what it means to be a part of a community? Like, I feel like you can break all of those pieces down. Where does it That's come from? That's how you move from, the needle. Though. But because uh, before we started talking, before we started recording, I had brought up the example of how, you know, during the space race in the 50s yep. and 60s, how elements of the government reached out to comic book writers, movie sure. writers, TV writers, and encourage them to write more science fiction stories. This is one of the reasons why like Green Lantern and DC Comics in the 60s suddenly had a sci-fi origin instead of a magical one. There was a lot of that going on in the 60s, which is also where you see the beginning of kids saying like, I wanna be an astronaut when I grow up. 
And then that had actual effects um, in the culture. And that came from the government. So like you two are just expanding my question, like talking about good things. How do we get there is my question. And I I guess to put it, yeah, but to put, how do we get there? We've discussed, but now like who does that? Like you mentioned cultural. Not one, not one. It's not, it's a group. I think what you're looking for in your question, you're looking for a single person that then everything falls out from. Mm-hmm. Like, if that, it sounds to me like you want a single answer. I guess like my question back to you, Tricia, would be, is there a way to have a collective strategy? Because what you're describing, like what's, what's, what I'm not hearing in your answer that I'm not understanding is like, like, is there any commonality? Otherwise, like, yeah, you could have lots of people doing lots of things, but they could be operating across purposes. See, I, I don't see what I don't understand is why you need a single point of light. I'm not well, saying single point of light. I'm, I'm asking that, you because that was oh, okay. that was in my thing is that I want us to be kinder and more community oriented, which is a direction. You know what I mean? But it presupposes things in your question, right? It presupposes yeah. a bunch of um, causality that you all don't want to unpack. Like you're talking about structural changes that you want to see happen because mm-hmm. you led with Trump. So you're talking about leader behavior. Yes, yes. That's really what it comes down to. Like a base, I mean, and, and I think even where Jason landed, you all are talking about government. You're talking okay. about government. Because like, and, and you're talking about the fact that government has become nasty, like in a certain way. Where encourage us to be nasty, both in our communities to be and nasty. Individ- And then you want a contrast, right? And yeah. then you want the, you know, you want to contrast to that and then how that would play out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, what I'm saying is that those levers can be pulled by other people. And, can, and are being pulled by other people. And so, so you're maybe your thesis is that government is functioning in a certain way in your, in your perception. Mm-hmm. And you'd like to see government change and shift. And so those levers are what you're really looking for, I think, because the cultural markers are happening. I see people I, talk about I that. I see what too. you're saying. I, I think why I'm, I think, now I'm thinking about how I pose the question. And you're right. I do give it outsized sort of responsibility to the government. Because especially in the last four years, what the government has done has driven the public conversation around every single thing. And I'm not saying that the government, I'm not saying that culture was not cruel before Donald Trump, but the celebration of cruelty and the embracing of it, uh, I think has moved the needle all, all over the places. And while you're right, like while churches and schools and stuff are moving to counteract that, I know certainly the circles that I'm moving in working with children move, there's definitely a move to counteract that. Like none is as sweeping and national as something that the, the people at the top are doing, either, either federal or state or local government. Like you look at the national you know, we, we do this thing every three years where we like severely want to punish trans people, you know, and that controls our attitudes about trans people. Mm-hmm. So I hear what you're saying. You're right. I think those levers are being pulled by all different people. So I guess my question is, do you think, do you two think the government could be successful in doing the opposite? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm presupposing government has gotten nasty, but, and that's true. And maybe that's always been true back to the founding fathers. But because of media and social media, it is encouraging us to be nastier in our interpersonal circles. And can, if, if the government has given us that, can it be instrumental in removing it? Or is this about enhancing well, all those other people who hold those levers, maybe small levers, but they, or is it about enhancing people? So what, how do we, how do we actually shake that out? You know, it's interesting that you just brought up social media because I actually think social media and 
many things about it, I think have probably advanced nastiness more than government and government has more responded to it. Um, so, so then it gets us to a question of like, can you turn down the, you know, the nastiness on social media without government intervention? Um, of course that brings in all kinds of other questions. I don't, I don't know. I'm not super optimistic about government's ability to turn down the nastiness in our society. So maybe it's not government, but well, I mean, this comes out of a, of actual worry that I have that based on social media, based on certain governmental agents, I, I have this worry that we've gone over a line and that we can't crawl back to being an actual community. Uh, first of all, community feels really long, really large. Yes. I think that term is really weird. I think sure. so. Also, I think we're talking about a national community and a national conversation, because I think there are pockets of communities that are functioning quite well, actually. So I suspect this is much more about how do you give or how do you create the perception that there's a different way of doing business. And oh, I, think I like what you that. Do is is consequences. For the last couple of months, something has been revealed to be racist, and immediately the market rewards it. That fee- and if the market reward has been has trumps everything, then you're lost, right? Mm-hmm. Like you absolutely lost. So I think what what that asks what that begs for are real consequences for people who cross lines. And I don't mean it in a punitive way, but I just mean like you you stop and say, no, absolutely not. This is not what we're gonna do. This is not who we are. And you have a real zero tolerance around that. But who's who says that, Trisha? Like, you know what, you know who says it? I, I mean, I've been thinking about it as I'm looking at how the reward structures in certain kind of interactions. Like I'm looking at like the president's press conference, like the kinds of questions people are raising in those they are they are clearly as a result of the last couple of years. Those are irresponsible questions. They they just don't even make sense. You're sort of like, why are you at like we're in the middle of a pandemic and you're not asking COVID questions? Like, how is that possible? Yeah. You know, so I mean, like I think you can begin to push back at some of those levers and have people say, you know, call this call this uh newspaper office and say that reporter is irresponsible. Why is this person assigned? Like, I just almost think we have to kind of reintroduce some of those levers that actually prod individual actors. It feels grassroots level. And, chase. and it, it's always been grassroots level. It's always been people saying this is enough is enough. And then folks really pushing back on that and saying, okay, I get you. Like you have a reporter say something um, online, a, a newscast and everyone's like, oh no, zero tolerance on that. That's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And the, the station responds accordingly and it, it recalibrates. Like, I just, I think that we need to sort of begin to do some of that recalibration. The mm-hmm. question though is, what are we recalibrating around? Well, that to me, that's a really interesting question. Cause what I was going to say before you said that, Trisha, is I feel like what you just described happens every day. Reporter sure. says something, sure. yeah. people push back, publication has to make a statement or fire them or whatever. But that, but so to me, the real question is, well, what, what's the, I don't know. This all feels very circular to me. Like I'm struggling with. No, but I think I don't know the what, question you're asking is, see, I think what, I think the question you're asking is you're looking for a global picture that never existed probably. Like, mm. I think what you're looking for are the gatekeepers to return. Because when you had four or five gatekeepers, you can, you can wrap their knuckles and tell them you were wrong. Mm-hmm. But we don't have four or five yeah, that's a very We have good point. a sea of people. Yep. And so that ability to force them to retreat or say what, you know, that that's, we've just lost that. 
I think Biden's approach to how he's leading is very calming. It's very much in this, like, this is not what we're going to do as a nation. You've got people saying that. I think you can have it on newscasters as well. I think you can have those major network could also do that. They could stand to do that more. I think there are some leaders out, out in front that we can chastise more. We just haven't been doing that because we've sort of yielded the floor to the market. Mm-hmm. We've said, if you make money off of it, it's okay to do it. Um, and I just, and so there's a little bit of recalibration that has to happen where we lean on consequences. There's no single or couple of points anymore. There's just so many. Oh, that makes me sad. Just because I, it makes me sad because I do not have, <laughs> it was very revealing. I don't have faith in the crowd. I think, you know what? I think you thought I was talking about government, but now I think Jason exposed that I was really talking about social media. And I, I think that we have- We've talked about all the time. Yeah, we talk about all the time. And I, I think we have allowed a few agents to like really control the conversation. And I just don't know how the better angels break through to that message. So I guess I was leaning on government, like government do something, but government has been unable to save us for my entire lifetime. So, I mean, maybe you're right. Like maybe there is, can you think of anything that's gotten worse? I think immigration for sure. That's my top line when I think our ideas about immigrants are so different than they were in the late eighties. Anything else you think has gotten worse? I think that like the needle has moved a lot on like profanity in public in mass mass comms, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think displays of some kind of kind of sexuality and nudity. And again, I'm not saying that's worse. I'm not sure it's better or worse, but I think things have changed. I think we've pushed the envelope a bit on like criminal justice and people's awareness about that as a kind of mass institution. I think we've also really moved the needle on ideas. around. It's funny. I was thinking about this in terms of like ideas around like consent and what that means. Like just even language around that. Like, it's like really interesting to me around that kind of stuff. Like I remember it being introduced in the eighties and it feels like the next, the nineties. Yeah. The eighties and the nineties and Mm -hmm. the next generation have really kind of taken up that and off off, off, offline though, not something I could actively see, mm-hmm. but I really kind of perceive it in their interactions with each other. One of the things I also think though, Chris, is that in, in, in light of the fact that you all talk about social media quite a bit, I also think that like, I wonder sometimes if social media isn't actually out of step with what people are actually doing offline. Like, I think there's a disconnect there for me. Like I really... When I listen to and hear young people engage with each other, and then how I see young people are characterized in social media spaces, it's really off. Like, that's not true. And so there's like an outsized picture of the world that's being offered up that I, I, I think we should push back on a little well, bit. Look, I, so I agree with you, Tricia. What I find, what's interesting that I don't, I can't mm. explain, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. And yet, I do think social media media causes people to make certain real choices. I mean, I hate to keep going back to like Trump, but like, even if most people don't talk in person the way that people talk on Twitter, for instance, people were very attracted to that kind of rhetoric and not just from Trump, but from a lot of the like 
right-wing conspiracists. But, not but you know what? But we think, but we see a through line from like Wallace all the way up. Like there's that rhetoric has all rhetoric has always existed. And I think the idea that it's not that people are newly attracted to it. No, I think that's always been there. I think what's been missing is a counter. I don't think we had a, I think, and also I think let's just be honest. The man swept through our media environment. He was a media machine. Uh, he really did. I mean, and he that's was every what it is. print, TV, social media. Like yeah. it, it was a, yeah, it was an assault. Influence. It was an yeah. assault on all avenues of media. Yeah, and it and that I think has really muddied the waters a little bit. And I, I and but but let's be honest, the the media model was the, the the money model really fed into that. And I'm not certain if it meant anything was like happening differentially in, inside of people, but he definitely creates the impression that everybody was just in this space with him. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know. I don't know if that was That's, real or not. It's really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to pause us there because I think that would be a very interesting conversation to have. You give me a lot to think about the fact that maybe the social media environment doesn't reflect what people are actually doing. I haven't stopped to think about that to any depth, but I want to hold you. I want to, I want to pause there because Trisha gave me the perfect segue to our second topic when she mentioned consent. So uh, we're going to move into our second topic, which is about, oh, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about sexual assault and the movie Promising Young Woman. Now, if you haven't seen the movie Promising Young Woman and you want to see it, I suggest you stop here and go watch the movie and then come back and join us. If you have seen it, get hold on to your hats. So <laughs> Promising Young Woman is a film starring Carrie Mulligan about a young woman who was uh, who had a friend who was sexually assaulted. And now this young woman, the Carrie Mulligan character, she spends her nights pretending to be blackout, like blasted drunk, going to bars, allowing men to drag her home. And just before that she is assaulted, she sort of drops the slurring, challenges them, and then they shrink back and she goes home and she has a little notebook that she marks all her conquests in. Throughout the movie, there's like a romance that she gets involved in with an old schoolmate. And then surprise, again, I'm spoiling everything. Turns out that roommate might have been involved in the original assault that started the whole whole movie's um, plot going. At the end of the movie, Carrie Mulligan's character eventually takes revenge on the people who assaulted her friend at the cost of her own life. Uh, Trisha had suggested that we all watch this and we did. And so now we're here. So let's chat about it. Trisha, what was your question about promising young women and sexual assault? Experientially, how did it, how did you experience the movie? Cause I was uncomfortable. I was disgusted. I cheered in moments, but I was like unsettled throughout the entire movie. How did you all feel? I agree. Uh, I I would agree with, I think, everything you said. It was unsettling. I didn't particularly appreciate the movie very much. I didn't enjoy it a ton. There were a couple scenes I thought were actually really, really good. But yeah, it was definitely kind of unsettling. And, and, And this, I'll say a positive thing, which is like, I thought the use of like horror movie music at certain points when two people are just having a conversation, probably heightened some of that unease and was was an interesting cinematic choice. I wanted to talk about the nature of revenge mm-hmm. and what pursuing revenge does for you. Because throughout the movie, 
this character is consistently reliving the rape trauma that not even it's not even hers it's her friend's rape trauma how does she respect what happens to her friend but not stay there even though i wanted her to give the people their comeuppance like it seemed really difficult to separate that drive to find justice or find revenge from feeling as if you must stay in that place forever well that's the nature of revenge right and as a lifelong batman fan this is always (laughs) the tension around bruce wayne and batman is that is he seeking revenge for what happened to his parents or is he seeking justice for people who are victimized as he was. And in this film, you know, it's clearly a revenge fantasy film. You know, she is absolutely seeking revenge. She does it every night. She's really methodical about it. But you know, and this is the this is what, you know, we're told as children about revenge. It leaves you empty. And I found the movie to be really empty because if that's your motivation to punish people, especially the way that this movie did it, I think revenge just leaves you feeling hollow. Like what was the point of all of that? Because you have to spend so much. You have to burn yourself out from inside out. You have to sacrifice your own life to get this revenge. And I mean, I don't know, maybe you feel better afterwards. I'm not certain. But I think this is why the conversation about revenge versus justice always happens because justice, getting justice for a wrong that happened to you, like seeing people dealt with by a process and punished, making sure that other people who suffered as you have will not, like you can really take something away from that and you can move on with your life. Revenge arrests you, you're stuck forever. Jason, what do you think? I wanna challenge the concept. I know that it's commonly said that it's a revenge movie, but so much of which I felt like she was more teaching people lessons than getting revenge. Like other than the guy at the end that gets arrested, what are the like negative consequences that people suffer? It seemed more like, you know, she would be vaguely and momentarily embarrassed. Basically. Yeah. That was and I thought she was ba- No, I thought it was more like, see how it is. Don't do this to anyone else. That's how she was with the Dean. That's how she was with the guys. Yeah. It was, and it was kind of like, as long as you kind of say you're sorry and seem really sorry, you know, I just want to make sure that's the case. There was the lawyer that had reformed himself or something. I, it didn't seem like a whole lot of revenge. I, I agree with the point. <laughs> I, I agree with the point that she's stuck. No mm. question about that. And then we see her finally start to move forward in her life. I don't know. I mean, the movie clearly and explicitly is signifying on revenge movies. Um, and there is a Batman element to, to her without mm. a doubt. I, I don't know if you remember, but the first, first time or two that she goes home with a guy, you don't really see what happens. And I remember thinking like, what happened? Did she like kill him? Like, and then as you start, as like the movie gradually reveals more and more, like she's not actually getting revenge. She's like teaching people things. Well, the question, well, Jason, that's interesting. You're being very what generous you, teaching people things. And also, but, but the thing for me is like, what do you mean by getting revenge? Because this is what Chris is saying. You've actually made Chris's point, which is that no. the revenge is, the revenge is unfulfilled. Is revenge for you that she would like meter out some sort of death? Like what, cause that's the thing is like, it is not going to fulfill. It's not going to come to the a, a, an end point in any way. Well, yeah, like, but just to be clear, like revenge would not be, hey, don't do that to a woman again. Like that is by any <laughs> definition of revenge, that is not revenge. Now we could say, well, she could kill him and then not feel better. Like that's the point, but she's not doing anything like that. She's 
like telling them not to do it again, like in in a pretty like forgiving way. I just Listen. don't see it as revenge at all. I don't see how it meets any definition of revenge except for the guy who gets arrested. If I can, why is the arresting the thing for you? That's, that's the part the thing. That I hate. It's the only thing that's that's comes well, close think, to revenge. I think the thing is, well, it's the thing that comes closest to consequences. Consequences, which yeah. is different than revenge. Yeah, so what, I think. So what Chris yeah. is asking is there a psychological aspect to revenge? Like, is there a psychological aspect in the interaction for the person? Because that's what your whole. Because see, that's the thing, right? Like, I think when I left the movie. What I realized, and I don't know anything, I don't know a lot about restorative justice. I don't know a bunch of any of that stuff. But there, I think one of the baseline elements about it, though, is like a kind of reckoning with our common humanity, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like the, the person who's done the wrong has to acknowledge the wrong was done. So it's such that you find, you find yourself meeting somewhere, right? Like, you recognize that, like, I have the power to harm you and I exercise that power in a horrible way and i really truly see and understand that this was done yeah she was not seeking that she wasn't but i think that's what she wanted she wanted a reckoning from each person like i did like what she did with the dean and the dean the dean was someone who the dean is the character who the victim went to to seek help and the dean basically fell on procedure for the institution and didn't really provide service to that girl. And so for me, that was a moment where I think she was going to the Dean and say, what was your role here? What should you have done? But that wasn't restorative justice because in each of these examples in the, and I want to abstract this in a second, but in each of the examples in the film, like everything she did was really about injecting fear into people. Like, this is why you shouldn't rape. This is why you shouldn't enable rapist is because like she told that one guy, it's like, you know, I, there's other women who do this and some of them have knives. And so <laughs> that's why you shouldn't sexually assault women because you yourself will be assaulted. That's the problem I had with this film is because, you know, given that this film is nominated for Oscars, this is, it's poised to become a, you know, all capital letters, very important film about rape culture. And I do not think it belongs in that luminary position because I feel like it doesn't say anything about rape culture that is helpful or progressive. You know, the idea that she would follow these, these men would take her home and then just her pretending to be sober would be enough to have them cowering in the corner being like, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. As if, only as if men are only raping unwitting women when we know for certain that they are into raping unwilling women you know that's that's i think that's the thing that the movie misses is sort of it posits men as sort of like these bungling fools who are just trying to just trying to get their stuff wet and they'll take the opportunity but the moment that the opportunity closes up then they retreat and I just feel like that is not a helpful thing to inject into the culture. On top of that, your question was about revenge. I think to make a movie about rape, rape culture, but then use revenge as the engine to drive the movie really distracts the conversation about what we should be doing about rape, rapists, and rape culture in our society. We should be doing more restorative justice and justice, period, and not like literally killing yourself to make sure you catch that one guy who sexually assaulted your friend in college. I don't know. I, I, well, I mean, I think in some ways, maybe that's the point the movie was making, which is why I left the movie so sad. The way that society is structured and organized, there was no way that she was going to receive justice. And that in, in, yeah. in effect, 
justice was going to be is impossible for her to conceive of. Yeah, I agree. And actually, I'm going I'm shocking myself that I'm going to be now in the position of defending this film a little bit because I, I did not like it that much. But Chris, I, I, I agree with the point Trisha just made. I really think the point there was like, look at how ridiculously crazy it is to get a guy simply arrested for <laughs> raping someone. The other thing though, even what you were saying, I hear what you're saying about rape culture, like the unwilling, but I think this movie was really aimed at, it was aimed at a particular, let's say kind of man, like men who feel like after essentially raping women that they're still nice guys. That yeah. like, oh, you told her she was beautiful and you maybe even convinced yourself you have a connection, quote unquote, but you're raping her. Like, I really think it was aimed at that group of guys. I mean, these guys, and I mean, some of the stuff I think we read in preparation for this, like they come off as like, again, I'm going to put in quotes, like nice guys. Like these are college educated med medical student. And like, they're supposed to be really nice guys. And like, they, they I really, I mean, they had, they, these guys in many cases had convinced themselves, like, I was helping her out and then, uh, you know, oh, look at this. One thing led place. to another. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I just think that's, but that, it was that guy. It wasn't, it wasn't making a point about guys who everyone would agree that are clearly rapists. It's about the guys that maybe we, we, we convince ourselves that like, well, yeah, that happened, but maybe, you know. Uh, I push back on the I idea agree. that some I men agree. are clearly rapists. Like I'm not talking no. about career rapists. You know? No, no, but I, I agree with I agree with Jason's point mm -hmm. about this. I think that, but I think I do think that there are these men that are received as good guys. You know, they are businessmen, they are lawyers, they they have all of the tropes and the the kind of like things that signal to women that they're going to be okay. But then when it comes down to it, what I mean, really, the movie is harsh because when it comes down to it, the movie says that these guys are nothing like they believe themselves to be mm. at all. To the point where that, that's the, the leading character's romance, right? She begins to engage with a character in the movie who at some point in time has to admit to himself that he did a bad thing. And he could not, mm -hmm. he could not. And right. that is that guy. That is that guy. This movie is about those guys who've had right. interactions with women where they did a bad thing and have yet to come to terms with that. This is what the guy's like, I'm a nice guy. Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't like the movie, but I think the movie is right to say, that is not the point. Like, put that aside for a second. You raped someone. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, you can't erase that by saying I'm a nice guy and listing nice things you've done at certain times. Well, and that's the question, though. I think that's the question that the movie, that I'm left asking myself when I was in the movie. is like, so... What do you do with this? Like, what do you do with saying that to yourself that I did a bad thing? I rape, I enabled rape to happen. Hmm. I was complicit. Like, what are you saying to yourself? Because I like that's the that's the uncomfortable place that those people couldn't live in. Because I actually think, honestly, that's one of the things that I think the lead character wanted was a sense of um like their own recognition and participation. She wanted that from the dean. Well, which is she why with the lawyer, she didn't send the guy in after. She didn't send, he yeah. clearly I, had been 100% remorseful. Yeah, I he feel, was so remorseful, mm -hmm. right? You know, I don't disagree with everything you you all are saying. I just think that um, some of the points that you're looking, you were hoping the movie was going to make, I just don't think this was going to be the movie that was going to do it. Like the characters are drawn along very stark lines. And if there is, 
if there is a point to the movie, if there is a point, the a single point that the filmmaker wanted to get across, I think it's Jason hit the nail on the head before, which is like, hey, you can't be a nice guy and drag women home and feel them up while they're like halfway unconscious. Like that doesn't, yeah. you yeah. can't own those two things. I think that might be the singular point that the movie was making. I think a larger point eludes the construction of the film. I think the film is so much closer to, you know, forgive me, it's so much closer to like an action adventure sort of film than sort of like a deep exploration of rape culture. Um, You know, if you want an exploration of rape culture, then check out I May Destroy You. You know, then in that way, that that piece indicts the viewer where I feel like this does not indict the viewer as much because it's very easy for someone to watch this film and be like, well, that's not me. Well, that's I don't think so at all. Really? Because I oh really guys are all people I know and see no okay they might be people you know and see but what I'm saying is that someone watching the film isn't going to see them a man watching this film how would you not I didn't see see myself I think (laughs) and I don't know if that's me I mean I think which you know what I don't know but I mean like even the women in the movie that were complicit I Mm -hmm. can see myself in that complicit role the dean you know okay. what I mean? Like, okay. you know, those are the, the because what happens when you in, you're an institution is institutions force you to make dehumanizing choices. All sure. The time. Well, and you can rationalize. Are, that's why we have institutions. You know, we, right? Yes. We don't want to, we can't weigh for every individual. So we have <laughs> to dehumanize. We do like a lot. Right. And mm-hmm. so there are those elements in it. And so I, you know, I push back on the idea of like, this movie not offering an opportunity to enter rape culture in a very particular way. I don't think it has to enter it in the way that other movies have. Um, but I think what it does is really give you this moment of looking at looking at sort of like men who can't see who they actually are, who can't, and maybe you're right, maybe, maybe the lack of awareness from the audience might be, might be missing. But I, I don't know. I mean, like I thought to myself when I looked at the lead guy, I thought to myself, I wonder what that guy under, came to understand about himself. And you know what? Maybe you don't understand these things about yourself. And maybe that's the point of the movie. Because I, I, I mean, see. the point is like, should you go through the experience and come to the other side? One would hope, but I don't know if anything in the culture sets you up to do that. Because the culture does tell you that you can be a nice guy and rape. Like it says that often <laughs> because it's one singular bad thing you have done. It is not a defining feature of you, which is, I think, a real thing the character was struggling with. The lead woman was really struggling with that. She was struggling with placing those people within a context of a single moment. Mm-hmm. And and even, even the girl's family who dies wants her to move on from that. Mm-hmm. I think, and when we were, after we had seen it and we were texting about this, it wasn't until you mentioned that it was Oscar nominated that I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, Chris, oh, Chris was like, wait, wait what? a minute." <laughs> <I did. laughs> what? Okay, maybe that's it. Let's what talk about Oscar nominations. Do for you? talk about that. Oh, wait, ultimately, this is our annual bashing. Of the, I don't know if the, if the <laughs> listeners picked up on this. It. This has been a slow grind <laughs> to our annual anti-Oscars episode. Good job, everyone. <laughs> I know we it was so slow. No one noticed it was happening. Because <laughs> when we were just discussing it, I was like, you know what? The movie wasn't bad. Like it worked for, it worked on the level that I think it was pitched at. Like in the mm-hmm. first 15 minutes, I, I knew what I was getting and I got it. And I was like, okay, yep. you know, got it. When you said it was Oscar nominated <laughs> for best picture, that's when I was like, I had flashbacks from Crash, you know, <laughs> Crash was a all capital. It was a very special movie about race. 
you know, <laughs> and it was so, you know, it was so hackneyed and so tropey. Like it wasn't a discussion about race at all. It was just a discussion yeah. about like these really particular flashpoints around race and completely ignoring structural, institutional, you know, all sorts of stuff. So when you said it was Oscar nominated, that's why I was like much harsher on the movie. And I moved, <laughs> I moved it from like three and a half stars down to two. And I was like, oh, just because like, I see what you're saying about the movie. And again, I'm going to say this again. If the movie's point was like, you can't be a nice guy and rape, I get it. And and uh, I'm, all, I'm very big on telling other people this when they watch a movie. Like mm -hmm. maybe I just wanted to see a different movie. Hmm. And that's okay. fine. Maybe I want to see a different movie. Yeah. So it's not, awesome. it's not, <laughs> honey. So it's not, it's not fair for me to say like promising young women didn't do this, that, and the other. Well, that's, listen, like I said, in the first five minutes, you knew what you were getting and I got it. But what I didn't get was a really careful examination of rape culture. They went through and and their movie, especially the scene with the Dean was very heavy handed. Yes. Like you said about like, it was very didactic about what was right, and what was wrong. But I think what I'm left with was like, yet again, men don't rape women because you might be caught and embarrassed and you're gonna lose your status as a nice guy, as a nice guy, as opposed to men. Don't rape women because it's wrong. It's wrong. I, that's what I was missing from the movie. I mean, so, how would the movie mean, have told you that? Like I said, <laughs> like I said, there are other pieces that deal with this in a little bit yeah. more nuanced way and bring the audience into the conversation and indict the audience. And I think when you talk about things like race or homophobia or rape culture, I think indicting the viewer is important and not just setting up a, a bunch of just caricatures and tropes, which you can distance yourself from. Like, oh, you know, cause you know what? I bet you a lot of guys watch this film. A lot of guys have watched this film, like, oh, I would never do that. Right? But have they pressured a woman to have sex? You know, have they bought her one more drink after she's already had too much? Yeah. Just, you know, there's all these little things that guys will watch them and be like, oh, I never did that. But they did all these other things that contribute to rape culture. And I, again, I want to be really clear. Maybe I want to see a different movie, you know? But the fact that this was Oscar nominated and like, and the, God forbid it should win because then this will be the discussion about rape culture. And I just feel like it sets that discussion behind about six years. I feel like this 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 movie sets the this conversation. Is your, this, is, this is the rape culture crash. For, for crash. Uh, it's the rape culture crash. I think this, if this should win, it will set the conversation to pre-Brock Turner discussions. And I'm not interested in going back. I'm not. So interesting. And this is, I'm going to recommend again, I May Destroy You. Everyone, please watch it. Um, it deals with similar topics in a way that I think, and of course they had four hours, right? Because it was, it was four, eight episodes. But I think it was dealt with in a way that was a little bit more careful. But also to be fair, this movie was, like I said, closer to an action adventure movie. And if you want to see a woman punish men and kick ass and that sort of thing, this is the movie. I just don't like the, I didn't like the ending and I <laughs> didn't like the through line. But you all love the Punisher movies. Why can't she be a Punisher? That's what I'm saying. And if you want to see, but you know what? I don't watch the Punisher being like, was this a careful conversation on criminal justice? Like, it's not, if the Punisher's up for best picture, super critical of that. I'd be like, no, 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 no. So, what's the Punisher? Oh, dad, dad, leave me and my friends alone. We're talking. Dad, get out of here. 
<laughs> anyway, let's move on to media <laughs> recommendations, which is what you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason, I'm going to assume you're not going to recommend The Punisher. Uh, what are you going to recommend? <laughs> oh, man. I feel really bad now. Um, we need to put that in the notes, but just for me, the listeners, I guess, already know what that is. All right. I would like to recommend In and of Itself, which was a show, not like a musical, but a show on Broadway. And I saw it, I believe, on Hulu. And I really, really enjoyed it. It's not what I thought it would be. And it was very emotional, which I did not expect. Really, really good. And I've seen it myself. So I know it's hard to describe, but can you give people an idea? Yeah. yeah. So, so the, um, without necessarily walking through the stories, but can you give people an idea of just what yeah. it's about at least? Well, so it's, it's a show by an illusionist and there are illusions involved, but there's also a real narrative and there are real questions asked and explored around identity. Um, and so I will say the illusions are amazing, but it is not done in kind of the you know, big lights, you know, they're very kind of subtle, really impressive illusions. And then the audience is involved in, again, really provocative, emotional ways. And it looks like, you know, I obviously didn't see it in person. It looks to me like the people in person had quite a phenomenal emotional and entertainment experience. And even watching it, a recording of it, I found it to be very uh, emotional and entertaining. It's also kind of neat that they're, most of it, you see these people in the audience, they just look like, oh, these are, you know, New Yorkers, whatever, just like everyday folks. And then every once in a while, you're like, what is that? Bill Gates? I mean, like, you, you see like these celebrities and they don't get any attention, any special attention. So that's kind of neat too. Cool. Trisha? I didn't really have a media experience. Oh, I knew oh. it from the look on your face. The way you, <laughs> no, the way you were looking in every corner of the room. She's like looking around. You looked at your desk. Like, you looked at your plant. You looked all over the place. I mean, nothing other than like, I fell into like a YouTube hole where I watched like musical performances from um, Graham Norton show. I sometimes like, I sometimes Jesus. like to go How the hell are we and watch- to this? Can you talk about one that you really enjoyed? I, I was about to say, I was about to say, for some reason, I like to watch the Rihanna live performance on there um, because she just is like, she's just like light and she looks so great. I think that the performers tend to sing live on his shows mm-hmm. and they put like a really, they, they just come across really well. And so I, every now and then when I'm in the mood, I'll go check out some Rihanna on uh, from there, but it's mostly just um, Graham Norton live performances. And the way I'll recommend it for you, Chris, is I think there's actually like a link to a bunch of, a bunch of performances on YouTube of live performances on it. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I think I was in the mood for like live music and and not able to have it. So Mm. I was like, Let me go look at some recording of people watching other people do live music. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Yeah, what about well, you? Well, me, I don't have a very strong recommendation. What? <laughs> I don't have a very strong recommendation. You know, recently NBC had wrapped up six seasons of the half hour comedy Superstore, which follows mm-hmm. the workers of a fictional big box store in St. Louis, Missouri. And oh. it's, it's a sitcom. Uh, but what I really liked about Superstore and watching the final episode, I got really, uh, I don't know, I, I felt really like good about it, is that the show really talks about 
in its own comedic way, sort of like the economic struggles of people at a certain rung of society. Like the people who have those jobs, like just the choices that they have to make. Good Girls also, I think on, I think Good Girls on ABC, also talks about this similarly, just like what people are doing to survive. And Superstore rings a lot of comedy out of that. A lot of comedy around people working minimum wage jobs. But the show I thought was really funny. I would suggest that people check it out. I, it's it's done now. So I think you'd have to look on Hulu or whatever, Paramount Plus. I don't know what, uh, I don't know what NBC owns. They what are these platforms? I don't, know what, I don't know what these platforms are. You know, get it from the internet, but check out Superstore. And you know, it's the kind of thing that if you watch like three episodes of the first season, you don't like it, you can stop. But if you're mildly interested, it's kind of funny all the way through. It's just, it's entertaining. Cool. Yeah. Oh, say. well, that's better than nothing. Yeah, it's better than nothing. I check it out. And um, I just say that uh, I looked up in and of itself on Rotten Tomatoes 100%, which you do not see very often. Listen, go see it. Although I do think I recommended that on this podcast already. I'm almost positive <laughs> you did not. I'm almost positive you did not. Well, <laughs> listeners, can you let us know, is Jason just ripping me off? now just jason just out of creativity altogether and now he's just jumped on the chris train uh you let us know but uh, yeah but on that note everyone bye